Hi, and welcome to The Theology Box, a podcast dedicated to seeing how God fits into the world we live in. We hope you enjoy your time with us today, where theology is the conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome again to The Theology Box. This is your host, William Carroll, and today I have... Tracy Burge. Who is a professor at APU currently teaching uh, Bible. Yeah, I do biblical studies, my emphasis on Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Okay, cool. And um, she is a member of Foothill Free Methodist Church where I go. And uh, so that's a lot of the folks that I have on the show, either I go to church with or I went to school with. Uh, So that's our connection. But why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, where you studied or your interests? So I'm from Rochester, New York, and I went to school in Rochester. So I went to Roberts Wesleyan College um, and uh, I got a degree, my undergraduate degrees, well, two degrees, English and religion philosophy. Um, I got those degrees just because I liked to study them, not because I had any idea what I wanted to do with it. Um, And so I just kind of kept going to school until they paid me to be there. Um, So uh, now, so I got my master's in theological studies at Northeastern Seminary and um, I'm finishing my PhD. So I'm PhD ABD for a few more months. Um, And that's about... Go go ahead. What is ABD? ABD, um, all but dissertation. All but dissertation. Yeah. So I'm writing my dissertation right now. and uh, I'm at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. So that's Canada. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I was looking at McMaster's. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah it's a great yeah. school. I highly recommend Mark Boda. He's he's a great advisor slash mentor. So cool. So he's been working with me. And yeah, so that's me. That's cool. where I came from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And uh, your dissertation, you're working on something that's kind of uh, close to my heart because I my bachelor's is in English literature mm-hmm. um, and I have my master's in theological studies and you're looking at uh, I love the word that you used this last Sunday was ancillary characters is that yeah uh, so so the ancillary characters the side and supporting characters I, I switched to the term supporting characters instead of secondary characters okay. because often secondary is kind of an afterthought they're treated as ancillary they're uh, often conceptualize conceptually people treat them like the only purpose they serve in the narrative is to support the primary characters mm. especially in biblical narrative because it's not quite as detail rich um, but I think the lack of details is actually a misnomer I think there's a lot more there than people realize um, and that there's a lot going on in the margins of the text so uh, kind of my emphasis is to see how secondary characters or these ancillary characters change, rewrite, or have a completely different story within every story. Yeah. So. And uh, a lot of that is based on, is it post-classical? Yeah. It, so it's post-classical narrative theory. Mm. Uh, so post-classical, basically, it's a fusion theory. So take uh, literary theory and fuse it with um, psychology or neuropsychology. So instead of asking, what does the text mean? Uh, the basic question is, what are you doing when you read text? Mm. Because people, when they read a story, the reason they get lost in story is not because they're searching for an important meaning per se that comes out of it. Mm. But the reality is they place themselves inside the story. 
So, um, so my question is, you know, what are readers doing? How do they find themselves inside the story? And then with these secondary characters, what happens when we change the vantage point within the story itself? So not changing the story, just changing the vantage point, uh, using the textual cues that exist and mm. to try and understand what's happening and how those different characters can give uh, kind of encouragement or even warning sometimes. Right. And yeah. um, that's actually, so the first part of your dissertation I read, and it was a good refresher on <laughs> like the movement from uh, the autobiographical historical mm -hmm. uh, criticism to structuralism. Mm -hmm. And then we entered into post-structuralism. And so you, you I, I mentioned when I first heard this idea, I immediately yeah. thought of reader response, but you're, you're saying there's shades of difference um, because yeah. it's not so much about the response it's um and if i understand your dissertation correctly and please you know fill in and clarify um is that you're you're looking at uh so reader responses like the images have meaning because i create the world according to my previous experience right but you're more concerned with the new lived i guess quotes but kind of right. really lived experience um, that I'm gaining and the insight that I gained from right. reading and rereading a text? So so the the reason I push back at reader response is because it's not a movement that came out of the reader response movement, but it mm. does have correlatives, right? Mm. So it makes sense that it, there is a sense to which um, the story world is working within schemas or notions that you as the reader already have. But it's not simply regurgitating what you already know or creating a world based only on that, but changing, critiquing, and adjusting it as you go. So that's why you read a book and you don't just feel or hear things you expect. It takes the things you expect and changes them. Mm. And that's kind of, in a way, different for everyone. Um, and, and that's that's what makes it kind of amazing. That's what makes reading um, a story so engaging. You enter into the story world. Uh, Keith Oatley calls it, they become simulations of reality. Mm. Now, with a computer simulated model, you have to have the data correctly for it to, to work properly. Uh, so you have to understand the different textual cues and work within the textual cues. But once you do, it's meant to be um, a, a real and lived experience as you walk through the text. Right. Yeah, and uh, uh, Sunday you were mentioning how uh, the mind actually, when it's um, reading a story and going yeah. through that process, it actually shares the same patterns as someone um, having having a real experience or recalling yeah. a real life event. Um, yeah, uh, what's interesting is neuropsychology has actually demonstrated that when you're interacting with human beings, kind of the neural pathways you use, they're very similar, if not exactly the same, similar, I'll go mm -hmm. with that, um, to that which when you're interacting with characters in story. So for all intents and purposes, in your mind, they are real people, mm -hmm. which resolves this kind of paradox of fiction. Why do you cry when a character dies in story? They don't exist. Well, in your mind, they do. So mm. your mind is kind of rehearsing. It's simulating the reality of those experiences. Uh, psychological studies have also demonstrated that avid readers actually become more empathetic and more better socialized because they are aware of and kind of living through the experience, experiential lens of several different people instead of just one. And that's actually compounded, not, not just in a prolific reading, but in rereading. Right? right, being right, able yeah. to read the same story over and over, you start to hear and see different things from within the story. Yeah, so. and so um, how would you 
So um, the part that I didn't get to in the dissertation was mm -hmm. at least I, I did glance over, but did not focus on the, the names of the characters that you yeah. want to bring up. I, I suppose you, you probably don't want to talk about it too much because it's going to be your work. But Right. So it's um, the drum moral effect, right? Yeah. I want you to know. Yeah, Just yeah. Easy. So, so honestly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but no, I started this project thinking I was going to look at four different characters and four different stories. Um, and... But the more I did a deep dive into my first character, the more I realized that within that own story, there are several different characters that I could look at. Mm. Um, so I'm looking at the story of uh, Jephthah in the book of Judges. So Judges chapter 10, 6 through 12, 7. Um, so, uh, and I call them stories, not pericopes or accounts, because I think it adequately gets you in the right, it, it just gets you in the better mindset when you right. think about telling stories and hearing stories. So, um, so the first, well, the first chapter is the boring method one. But then after that, I do kind of an analysis of Jephthah. Uh, who is he? And kind of a basic character analysis. What different situations do you see him in? And how are they resolved and how are they left unresolved? Uh, because a lot of what the narrator does in that story, the storyteller uh, gaps and leaves ambiguous a lot of things um, including most importantly his mode of conduct like are you supposed to gauge him as a positive or negative figure right. and that's something that no one's been able to come to in you know thousands of years right. so that's super fun um and i think rather than resolving that issue i think uh maintaining the tension is really important because that's good storytelling mm -hmm. uh that's why some stories won't let you go after one read um but I do think different characters in the text illumine elements of his uh, character that are particularly negative. Uh, so I, I kind of uh, I'm not a big fan of Jephthah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't I don't blame you. Only only having the surface level <laughs> like I'm, yeah, I'm still yeah, kind of not a big murdering Jephthah your daughter fan. in the name yeah. of Yahweh is yeah. probably not probably the not the her. best example of faith. <laughs> um, <laughs> you'd be amazed how yeah. many people try and make it that. Well, um, I, I know there are some theories that go that well he he didn't really he didn't kill, kill her. her yeah yeah i yeah. um i mean i address them in my chapter so please read um <laughs> but uh <Teaser>. yeah it's <laughs> easier for that but uh it there's some traction i think it's an optimistic um reading mm -hmm. and it's not uh, the most natural one um right. i also <laughs> i have a tendency i never entirely eliminate possibility if there's a possibility then i hold on to it because i think that's part of the gapping intention of the narrative is mm -hmm. this hope kind of like at the end of the giver right mm -hmm. like did jonas survive or did oh, he yeah. actually yeah. find when he goes um, out into he, the sled yeah on the he goes out into the great other like the and other, then he's going yeah. down a sled and he sees what looks like christmas yeah. and so you're like is he having visions or is it real and you don't know until you pick up the next book. And I think that's intentional. Oh, except I didn't even know there was a follow-up book. Oh, there's a follow-up book. Oh, I should read that. Yeah, I'll totally. Yeah, I'm going to okay. leave it for you. Yeah, yeah, so, no spoilers. So, no spoilers. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think some of those tensions are meant to exist uh, mm. because holding on to multiple possibilities uh, is unsettling, but in a good way. It, it makes you think um, over and over. So, um, so I think it's a lesser possibility, I think, but I... I won't mm. eliminate it entirely because I don't right. know. Maybe it's because I'm a middle child and I like to make everyone happy. Um, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. <Yeah. laughs> um, but uh, but so within that text, I have one chapter where I'm looking at the daughter of Jephthah. Mm. Uh, so the first chapter is Jephthah, and the next is the daughter of Jephthah. 
Um, and the next chapter that I'm currently writing is The Enemies of Jephthah. Oh. Um, and I named it The Enemies of Jephthah because I'm not entirely sure that all of the enemies of Jephthah are actually the enemies of God or Israel. Right. Um, right. And I think what's interesting is at each turn, so I'm looking at the elders um, of Gilead, who are um, the ones who asked for his help. Um the uh, obviously the Ammonites, who are the nation that's oppressing Israel, and uh, the Ephraimites, who he incites. A, basically, they uh, they end up there's a civil war. Um, each of them, I think, there is kind of this pretense of a good reason for him to be upset, but there's also a personal slight that Jephthah mm-hmm. keeps trying to overcome. So I think paying attention to their characters, pay attention to their nuance, pay attention to where they're coming from in the narrative and why. It's very interesting what it does um, to that interaction, like actually having full-blown characters rather than just these kind of structural props for Jephthah's character. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's the enemies of Jephthah. Uh, and then the last one, um, which that's the one that uh, I haven't haven't started yet, but I'm looking forward to, uh, is looking at God as a secondary character in that narrative. Mm. Uh, because when you, and it's not me making a theological statement about God being secondary, because I don't believe that God is secondary, mm. but God chooses to show himself in narrative. Um, he chooses to become known through story, which I think is fantastic because of this notion that we, you know, our neural pathways are treating a character as a person, and therefore, how do we know God? Well, we know God who's embodied in character. Mm. He's more than character, but he chooses to be known that way. Yes, yeah, that's a really interesting. Right? Yeah. And so so I think that, I mean, it's just this very organic way of knowing God, right? It's as you read, you get to know the characters in story, and as such, you learn who God is through these stories. What do you do then when God chooses, elects to be a secondary character? Mm-hmm. Because in the story of Jephthah, God starts out in the beginning a fairly strong presence and then recedes into the background. So what might that be saying? And what might, um, why might God present himself as a secondary character in stories? Yeah. Uh, so, so that'll be fun. And hopefully I won't uh, border on heretical. Uh, no, I mean, <laughs> no, I think it sounds really, really good because it, it, even just that small um, explanation, it reminds mm-hmm. me of it it's 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 a lot like life you know there's yeah. more there's times where god is that central um person or i don't know how to say that but that you cling to and that you're yeah. looking for and that you're hoping reveals himself yeah and then you know hopefully he does and sometimes he does and then at other times you're like yeah. just doing your thing and but you know god yeah. is there supporting you you hope but you still got to make your decisions and get your yeah get your um, whatever actions that you want to do done and uh yeah so it's kind of it's kind of interesting because even in life god kind of he's yeah. he's present but he recedes to the background to let you yeah so and, and so what do you do with it and i yeah. think so often people's responses that i've read up to this point have been predicated on their theological disp- predisposition not the narrative Mm-hmm. So the question is, when you actually treat him as a character in narrative, what? how does that affect or how does that change? Mm-hmm. Like, can God elect, choose? Because in the story of Jephthah, the people cry out to God and God says, no, right? I'm not going to help you. Um, and then recedes to the background of the narrative. And he does pop in a time or two. Um, but why? And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I just find that, to be honest, I don't fully have an answer yet. I just... It's a fascinating question that I look forward to really 
kind of breaking apart when I get to that chapter. Yeah, I think that's such an exciting idea. Actually, I haven't heard anything that exciting in a while. Woot woot. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> great. Yeah, I love it. Um, actually, I was reading, I was, it, you, you write really well. Well, see, I, I have this theory mm. when, when, like this underlying theory that goes behind everything is mm. that biblical, the biblical text wasn't meant to only speak to academics. Right. So whatever it is that I'm discovering, if it takes a PhD to read and understand it, then there's something that I'm missing. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that came from the fact that I'm just really close with my sisters, with my, you know, like, with um, other people in the church who don't have PhDs, who love to talk about the biblical text. So if my theories require a PhD in order to understand them, then I'm missing a step. Right. And so so part of this kind of this draw for this came from what is the text doing that translates through space and time? And I kept coming back to my own and my own roots in literary studies, like stories. It doesn't matter what culture, it doesn't matter what time, it doesn't matter what place. Stories have always been part of almost, I'm saying almost because I haven't looked in every culture, but almost every culture on the planet. Mm-hmm. We speak and learn, uh, we're shaped by stories. Right. So it, it's fascinating to me that over 40% of the biblical text is story, it's narrative. I mean, mm. even the Torah, the law, is not law proper. I mean, there are sections that are, but a lot of it, it's it's not only story, but the law itself is embedded in the story. You can't take the law out and mm-hmm. have it mean the same thing. Story teaches in a really organic way. So why would God choose story when he could have made an awesome PowerPoint or, you know, a list? I mean, he made yeah, the Ten Commandments. Or just but, the Ten Commandments and then that's it. And then it. just leave it, yeah, right? Yeah, but, Nobody and, and make one of the commandments... Thou shalt not write stories. He didn't right, do that, right. right? <laughs> but there's something <laughs> he about it into exactly a story. the, the yeah. stories themselves become these organic and natural teachers mm. that you learn not just what to do but what not to do. You you learn the graded areas of life that are not as simple as a list mm. might imply. The nature of God is really interesting to like, you know, try and break it down and think about it conceptually. But at the end of the day, God presenting himself or choosing to be a character in narrative means that God is coming to us personified. Right. Um, to know God, how do you do that? Well, if for thousands of years, all they had were stories and stories that they actually took seriously, stories they read and heard over and over and over, then God coming to them as a character and story makes perfect sense. Right. Because then they know God in a really um, in a really clear and obvious way that everyone who's read story can relate to. Well, and that's the thing too. Like I, I find even in my own life, the thing that really helps me understand mm-hmm. the point somebody's trying to make or the life lesson or even when I'm yeah. trying to help instill wisdom in somebody that's like lost in a situation in life yeah. I don't go well just do this yeah you know it's like no I, I tell them a, a story and yeah. it's like this is what either I experienced or it's or it's like this imagine this you know yeah. and that really facilitates um, so much more I think that's that's a really powerful thing and you, you mentioned somewhere about that that narrative and the rereading of it and getting mm-hmm. those different viewpoints it's it's so much more important i think and that's mm-hmm. kind of what i'm trying to do with this podcast is that yeah. I, I i do want to get the theology out of it mm-hmm. but i also want to get just what's going on you know like why yeah. am i studying it why are, why is anyone listening to this if you know the two or three or 
I think at the <laughs> peak I've had 10 people listen. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah. Hello, everyone. No. Hi, but, all you 10. Uh, <laughs> 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 Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so, but it's like, you know, I hope that they're listening to it because it's, there's something to theology that isn't scary and academic that there's something no. approachable and in, in who god is yeah. and that theology isn't trying to put god that's why like the the pun or the play on words is the theology box you know the show because <laughs> everybody's yeah. like oh you know theology puts god in a box so i'm trying to say well well yeah i guess you could but god's so much greater than a box I'm say good theology refuses that yeah right and so that's that's hopefully what we're doing and yeah. um but the, the narrative concept versus structuralism, um, mm-hmm. cause you could, cause that was something that you mentioned. That's what I wanted to get to was that something that you mentioned in your um, dissertation is that the stru- structural critique, the critical mm-hmm. method of structural, <laughs> let me just, I, I love to edit <laughs> the, the critical method, um, mm-hmm. structuralism, that still sounds her- terrible, but we'll go with it, it <laughs> is what was used for a really a uh, long time with with yeah. the bible and so uh, well when it came about it got it yeah. became really popular it's still being used today and really the if you look at the like the book i mentioned earlier the Ju- book on jewish humor oh yeah 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 mm-hmm. or the midrash um yeah. all the, the way that the jewish people have understood the biblical text um throughout their generations has been to tell stories about it and yeah. say what can we derive that i have a jewish friend this was a guy who's uh, also a screenwriter actually and so mm. he was uh peeking over my shoulder as i was prepping a lecture on david and he's like wow you're a christian who's saying this about david you, you sound like a jew um <laughs> <laughs> i thought that was a, a very nice compliment um but he was you know he was really fun and he's like yeah i always find it interesting you know mm. when you go into a church he's like i had a girlfriend and we she asked me to go to church with her so i went and you have a pastor and he says, this is what the text means. And everybody nods their head and walks away. And this is what the text means. This is what I should be taking home. He's like, you know, we hear like, a, you know, the rabbi teach something. And then we go into the back uh, after the service and we all argue, mm. um, present yeah, what argue, we see argue, or hear true. or, you know, we debate and we leave without resolution because that's what it means to study the Torah. Yeah. Because we know that about stories. I mean, think about some of your favorite books. Uh, you know, like you take a literature class, any literature class, or even just a movie, right? I remember when uh, Infinity Wars, uh, the Avengers Infinity Wars, mm-hmm. and everybody just sat and talked about all of these characters. Thanos became this complicated, like, villain character where you kind of sympathized, and people would have all these debates. And it just struck me at that point how we take this movie that really isn't I, mean, I love you know superhero comic book movies so i'm not going to smack talk them <laughs> but it's not exactly the highest level of writing in the world right and we pour over them more so than we do one of the greatest you know books that's ever been written mm-hmm. like these these stories so maybe we don't always understand their storytelling techniques which i'm trying to to help with at least the characterization portion right right to see, the, to see the story for itself because I think yeah. you can get so much more because there is such a big difference between being told what to do and how to live and you're doing it wrong or right yeah. or whatever versus look at these characters that did yeah. it and can you can you experience yeah. that with them and learn yeah. something from it? 
Well, and I, we, we pass this wisdom on generation to generation anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so if I were to ask you who you are, you could list attributes, but more likely you would tell me stories. Right. And what you gained from them, how they shaped you, how they made you who you are. And, you know, the, it's almost comical. We, you know, put it into how we, we talk about, you know, the elderly and how they tell their stories and, oh, grandpa's stories. and it, mm-hmm. But those stories aren't just flat and disembodied. Those stories shaped who he is, how, who grandpa is, who right. grandma is. They're sharing wisdom, not just moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and these collective stories, the ones that keep moving, they're shared and they're remembered because they don't just shape a person's consciousness, but all of ours. Um, And, and so there's something about story. There's something about the way that grandpa told the story a little different right before he passed at 75 years old versus when I was a little girl and he was in maybe his fifties or sixties. And I was listening to these stories and laughing and crying and they meant a little something different as the perspective changed, but the stories maintained. Right. The story still spoke. And I think that's the power of the biblical text is that it's not just a flat and disembodied text. It's a story. It's a world that we can place ourselves inside. Mm-hmm. And we're not supposed to hear the same thing every single time. We're supposed to grow and be shaped by the story, as well as when we grow and are shaped, we reread the story and realize it may not have said the thing we thought the first time, or maybe there's more nuance to it. Or maybe we get more angry with characters. I use the example of the Akedah, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. Mm. You know, Growing up, I thought that was just the most noble and righteous deed and act. And then now as a parent, I look yeah. at my children, I'm like, why didn't he fight? Yeah. Like he, he fought everything in his life. He pushed back against God. But then God's like, kill your son. He's like, all right, all right no yeah. problem. Yeah, sounds um, good. Yeah. I'm like, you know, on one end, okay, cool, he's faithful and righteous on the other end he doesn't understand god at all yeah and this kind of basic thing that comes from knowing that the god of of our scripture is this god of mercy and love totally doesn't miss that piece right because he doesn't even fight for justice for his son for yeah, God has to finally be like, no, dude, it was a joke. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, well, I tell no, my no. students, I was like, yeah, he passed the test, but yeah. you know, everybody in this class knows there's a difference between passing with an A plus plus and barely yeah. squeaking by with, right. you know, the D plus. Right. Yeah, because you know? I mean, even what is a uh, Jacob wrestling with God? Yeah, you know, just for a blessing, and Abraham's been you know, been promised this kid forever, and then he finally gets it, and then God's like, okay, and now sacrifice it. I, yeah. I, I guess there's other. And I know ways that there are a lot it. of different readings like you, of that text. You could text, say like Abraham but... was like, was this the whole reason for it? You know, maybe there was something in the back yeah. of his mind like, I guess it was supposed to be that, and he's all bummed out going up there. But yeah, he could have fought. He he, he should have fought. I think one of the the I modern the the structuralist misnomers, the modernist misnomers, is that we have to come to the conclusion about one meaning for the text. Mm-hmm. But the reality is the text is creating a story world so that you can interact in it. You can love or hate him. Mm-hmm. You can um, gain this sense of righteousness. You can um, say no. Like knowing God makes me want to fight for what's right. Even sometimes with God, which you see with Moses, you see with Jacob, you see with all these different characters. Like, And the more stories you read, the more you're like, yeah, why didn't he do that? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, uh, a great book I read for my comprehensive exams um, by Judy Klitzner, uh, Subversive Sequels, mm-hmm. uh, points in which the biblical texts seem to be arguing with previous stories. Mm-hmm. And the Eke does one of those, and she says, um, the book of, I believe it was the book of Job, she called a subversive sequel to the Ekedah, where Job, Job yells back. Right, um, right. And, and, you know, kind of, and there's all this language that connects these two stories that only exists in those two stories. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Great book. Uh, yeah. Fun read. But, but I think it gets to this, like, where reading and engaging in the biblical text is not supposed to be flat and orderly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something you wrestle with your whole life. Well, and and there's some actually it reminds me of this thing do you know who Malcolm Gladwell is no he has a really good podcast I don't know if I've mentioned it before but it's in on a revisionist history mm-hmm. and he one of the things he was doing was talking about memory yeah. and it's it's malleability yeah. and how we I think that's one of the big faults of western education is that yeah. you learn this you learn this and you and you memorize it so you can answer the multiple choice or make yeah. sure you list out the vocabulary and yeah that's has its value but like ultimately we don't learn that way we don't grow that way we we right. our memory will change and there's yeah. this really cool example of like a, a this guy that was a spy in world war Two. okay yeah and he ended up going on this final mission and he brought this like famous harmonica player with him and uh yeah as you do on a secret spy yeah, mission yeah it's yeah, yeah it's it's, it's crazy <laughs> that it's true but um the, that's crazy the funny part is that they they went to the same place and remember two totally different things happening and by the end of the spy's life yeah he changed his story to include the other person's story even though he didn't remember it that way and yeah. it was and it was the difference between 10 gestapo soldiers versus 10 grandmas and <laughs> <laughs> just sitting there yeah. you know so it's like it's this dramatically different yeah but yeah. but through the 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 reason he did it was because the friendship meant more than that day right and there were elements of this rebellious little, this final little group yeah being there but also like they were hiding out at their grandma's house so maybe there was like one or two there but the harmonica was like he honed in on the fact that the grandmas were there right the spy he's there for a mission right and so he just eventually as far as we know now that he just they just they com- the stories combined yeah yeah uh, which is probably a more accurate rendering to begin with probably I mean, yeah like psychology like you know psychological story like studies of memory have mm-hmm. demonstrated the kind of malleability mm-hmm. of memory the fact that it's not foolproof you remember the details that mattered to you right and then you even rewrite them <laughs> and, and you can yeah, rewrite yeah, them yeah, yeah. It, it can be like ideas can be suggested or implanted mm-hmm. um so, so and, it's, and that's the beauty i think of the narrative concept and the re right. the emphasis on rereading the bi- yeah. biblical text is because take yourself there each time yeah. and gain insight from different perspectives and yeah yeah and it it maybe you won't remember all the details yeah but you'll remember being there yeah you know well, I, when i was a kid there is this cartoon called superbook i don't know if you've heard of it no. it was super cheesy 1990s children's uh tv show so these kids would do something naughty of course <laughs> and uh superbook would like 
come to life. It would like light up and it would come off of the shelf and it would open what? and the kids like would walk up to it. And they'd fall into the story. I think I remember. It the, was, it the, was fantastic. It the, was my like favorite. Opening credits. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's super cheesy. And I've watched it since then. I'm like, I do not necessarily agree with all the interpretations of those texts, but, um, but I love this, the basic concept, right? Like mm. this notion that, in order to learn what is happening, you don't necessarily need someone to tell you, be this and not that. You need to watch it. Mm-hmm. You, I, I joke with uh, my students. I'm like, the, the biggest disservice anyone ever told you growing up was that you had to suspend imagination. Mm-hmm. Imagination is what makes all of it make sense. It make, it's what makes all of it real. Like, how do you picture these stories happening? It's not going to happen based on structural elements or what it has to happen when you take those textual cues and you allow it to become a picture, a world in your right. mind and uh, use your imagination. Yeah. It's kind of like if, if I, when I draw something, it's charcoal on paper. Yeah. If all you see is charcoal or paper, then you're missing the point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You completely (laughs) missed it. I would be, I would be kind of thrilled that somebody would say that because I'd be like, do you really think that way? But then I would, I would also be saddened at the same time that they don't see the other, the the put together picture. Right. Because that means, that means that they're not really interacting with, with the work. Right. Well, and then there's this reality too, is that work itself doesn't change but the viewer does. Mm-hmm. And so what they see and get out of it might be different than you originally intended. I mean, it still has to stick to the actual piece. Like you can't stray from the actual piece, which is why my dissertation, I focus on like textual cues. What are the textual cues? What are the expectations of what it means, for example, to be a daughter, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just apply modern expectations to an ancient one. But the more you know, the clearer this picture becomes, mm-hmm. the the more accurate the simulation and the more depth and real, like to say, you know, be brave no matter, no matter what your circumstances is one thing, but to see someone who has lived a life among dangerous people, um, barely survived really a, a dangerous childhood has finally been restored and then to be not only killed by her father, <laughs> but disemboweled dismembered burnt at an altar yeah not good (laughs) that that form of courage is different yeah um what does it mean to be righteous to the point of death right and we all love this notion this romanticized notion of oh we serve god and god's gonna make make sure everything's gonna go right but some people die like the biblical text is full of people who do the righteous thing even when it kills them mm-hmm. um and maybe because it, it's righteous because they do it despite the fact that it kills them mm-hmm. what can we learn from their stories not just the heroes that were protected for other reasons right there are reasons that those people continued in the story some people the most righteous thing they did was offer the greatest sacrifice unflinchingly yeah um some people fought back uh, you know so many people on the margins of the narrative that we don't we choose not to hear their story because we only hear the story once and we take the cliff notes version right and then um, and then all the focus is on the yeah the positions of, of power or and I, I think that's actually really interesting too is just well maybe that's another we all, we like, all want to be yeah. the main character in yeah. the story right so we always read stories and associate us like connect with the main yeah. character 
but I, I love when you can tell like a real, you know, like Harry Potter fan, right? Because then they no longer want to be like Harry. They think of all of the other characters like, uh, that Luna, Luna yeah. or, oh my gosh, she, she's such a sweet character, yeah, right? Yeah. Or, or even those who like sympathize with different people from Slytherin or, right? Mm. Because they've so spent so much time in the world. They see more than just the simple basic Cliff Notes right. version. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I, I, this is my favorite visual is, you know, Comic-Con, right? Like no one goes to Comic-Con. Very few people are dressed like Luke and Leia. They're dressed like some random alien at a bar that showed up in like two or three movies or a Mandalorian who makes a small play. I mean, now you've got a series, so they're a full blown character, but before that, like a really small yeah. role in, but people knew the whole history, the background, and they connected with this character that shows up for part of one of the movies right mm -hmm. um but we do that on multiple reads and we start to see ourselves in multiple places and and i think it's interesting because so much ideological criticism as it's called you know kind of looking at um perspectives of those who have been marginalized in society like in a modern context or you know like feminist studies or post-colonial studies liberationist scholarship all of them have been looked at as ideological they're coming from the outside looking in but the reality is they've always been embodied in the text. Those roles have always been there. We just weren't paying attention. Right. So this is kind of a, you know, part of my thought is this is a challenge to the way we conceptualize literary theory in general. Like you don't have to only pay attention to the main character because all of the characters are speaking, all of them are teaching. Right. And that's actually, I think, why I enjoyed your writing so much is because you're, you're, it feels like, this is really, and I, I don't want to over pronounce it, but it's like, <laughs> it's like, this is your idea, right? Like you're mm -hmm. like, yeah, people are focusing on secondary characters and what function they serve the story, yeah. but you're really looking at, at secondary characters and how they are the story yeah. when you reread and find yourself yeah. spending more time with them. Yeah, I guess you, you could. Say. So I think that yeah. people have had that experience connecting to the secondary characters um, kind of randomly. Mm -hmm. Right. And so uh, especially, you know, I, I've done a lot of work in feminist studies. Right. And you read and they kind of highlight certain female characters and they're like, oh, this is this is exciting. Look what this person does. And I think that that's a, a real and genuine thing. I mean, Phyllis Tribble, like just, you know, set my mm -hmm. heart on fire because I you know, was a female who had never heard the stories of female heroes, like that, mm -hmm. that we were anything um, significant in the biblical text. So hearing um, her kind of shine a light on these characters, it opened my eyes, right? But um, I think people always saw this as counter to what the biblical text is saying, we're going to look at this. And, and I think that that's the part that's been the misnomer, is mm -hmm. that that we're reading against the narrative to do that. But I think the narrative, because it presents enough information for you to have full and embodied characters, the narrative is inviting you to see them, um, especially upon multiple readings. Yeah. You know, I think it's flat and obtuse only to see the major, major characters. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as we have more people reading the text and identifying with characters on the margin, I think the best thing to do is not to see that as an ideological criticism, but to see that as part of the literary experience as a whole. Right. And um, how can we learn from and therefore utilize those different uh, perspectives in ways that we never thought 
thought of before or thought possible, kind of expanding the biblical story, not not to include something it didn't, but to hear voices that have always been there, but we had ignored. Right. Or kind of like, um, uh, I like to imagine it this way, is that you're you're saying the room is filled with people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe the person hosting the party has his three or four guests around him. Mm-hmm. But why don't you talk to the, you know, the person over by the punch bowl? Yeah. You know, because they're, they have a story too. And it's important yeah. to, I, I, I actually, those are usually the conversations that I go find because yeah. around the, around the center of attention, there's all these people, but over yeah. here I can have a decent conversation. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, when it struck the, me too, and I thought oh. about like, what is my meaning in life? Like, I don't, I don't want to be a main character, but I'd be happy to have a footnote. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think the footnotes matter and, and we, we just need to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for talking with me, um, yeah. about your dissertation. I did really find it fascinating. Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, is there any way, I, I know you, we had a little conversation before that you're mm-hmm. more detaching from social media, <laughs> Yeah. but is there any way that people can find your work or continue <laughs> no, I'm messing. Continue reading. <laughs> yeah, and or continue reading. Well, I have uh, I published an article on uh, the prophetess Hulda, um, uh, uh, precedent for female tempered radicals, mm. um, and so you know you can find that um, on most kind of academic databases. Um, recently, I have a, a chapter in a uh, fest shrift that was just published, uh, tumbling down the rabbit hole. What is it? Uh, a festschrift is a so it's a, a book that was published in honor of another scholar, oh, okay. and so it was one of my uh, professors. So oh, cool. Um, so tumbling down the rabbit hole. Tumbling tumbling down the rabbit hole. How um, how idolatry leads to social injustice and in Jeremiah chapter seven, uh, oh. uh, seven through eight three. So I. I the title may be a little bit different, but it's something to that effect. Cool. Um, I may have gotten a few words off. Oh, sure. Um, uh, and other than that, uh, you know, I always welcome emails. Um, I don't have a ton of uh, social media presence because I've been kind of uh, stepping away from that to focus on uh, my writing. But uh, hopefully I will have more of my dissertation published as it's finished. Um, so I'll keep you posted. Okay. And if you would like to talk with Tracy in person, just come join us at Foothill. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I am very chatty. Yeah, so. yeah. Rock and roll, man. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to The Theology Box. This has been your host, William Carroll. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone on The Theology Box team, Megan Napier, Mark Miller, and Richard Liotto. And stay safe, everyone. Wash your hands, and may the peace of the Lord be with you.